This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, and accessible. They are also now fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, which is cbtseminary.org. Again, that is cbtseminary.org. The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick. In this episode, we have the privilege of having not one, but two guests with us. Both have been guests before, Dr. Craig Carter and Dr. Chris Bolt. They have both agreed to come on and talk about a few related subjects. You may learn more about them by going to the episodes that we featured them in, but we want to get started as quickly as possible. Um, talking about the things that we're going to be talking about. So I'm going to go ahead and let Austin just start us off with the first question. Uh, the first question is addressed to Dr. Carter. Uh, we want to talk about the traditional proofs for God's existence. So uh, the question is kind of threefold. What are the traditional proofs for God's existence? Why do you believe that they are sound and valuable? And what is their relationship to natural theology? I know that's a lot of questions, but feel free to take the conversation where you want to go with it. Okay, well, I, I should warn you that uh, the first question alone, I spend five weeks on in my Doctrine of God class. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll try to be brief. Um, the traditional proofs for the existence of God. The best book that I know of on this subject is Five Proofs for the Existence of God by Edward Fazer. Now, these are not the five proofs, uh, the, the five ways of Thomas Aquinas. These are uh, five ways of proving the existence of God, which don't formally connect to each other, but they do have some, they mutually reinforce each other. So he begins with the Aristotelian proof, the Neo, and then he goes to the Neoplatonic proof from Plotinus. Then he goes to the Augustinian proof, and then the Thomistic proof, and then the Rationalist proof. Um, so, in this, in the Aristotelian proof, the basic, the basic idea is that uh, change occurs. We all see change happening around us, and in order for change to occur, potential must be actualized, and. <clears throat> and, and the things in the world are made up of a combination of actuality and potentiality. And so if there is the potential in a cup of hot coffee for it to be cold, then something must actualize that potential. Um, and the cool air that the coffee is sitting in might be the, the thing that actualizes it. But whatever actualizes potential has to itself be actual, right? So there's got to be uh, the cause of, of the change has to be something that's actual. So in this proof, he, he, he lays out the argument for why um, in order for the world to be as we experience it, the world of, of change, where potential is being actualized, 
we can understand how some things that are more actual cause the potential of other things to be actualized. But it does create a problem if we think about a, a series of causes and if we we've imagine how is change occurring now if, if, it, if there wasn't something fully actual at the beginning of that causal chain to start that causal chain in action. Now, I don't want to go into it in too much depth, but, but essentially the Aristotelian proof is an, is an argument that says there must be an unmoved mover who is fully actual. And that, that argument um, is taken up by Aquinas later. Um, and most people in the ancient world, in the mainstream of philosophical tradition, so I'm talking about um, if you're at the time of the fourth century Cappadocians or Athanasius or fifth century Augustine, you live in a world where the dominant philosophical tradition is Platonism. Platonism starts back with uh, uh, Thales of Alexander, Thales and, and the other pre-Socratics, and then it flourishes with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle in the third, fourth century BC, and then it continues forward with, uh, with the middle, middle Platonists, the skeptics, the, the, the various parts of this tradition, the Neoplatonists, Plotinus. By the time you get to Augustine, this tradition is almost a millennium old, and uh, there are alternates to this tradition, there's Epicureanism, which is hedonism. There's uh, atomism, which is materialism. Uh, there's stoicism, which is pantheism. But the mainstream of the philosophical tradition is some form or other of, panth of, Pl of Platonism. And all Platonists are agreed that there is, uh, that, that behind this world of changing things, there must be a uh, something permanent, immutable, self-existent, fully actual. Uh, in order for this world to exist. So it's, it's, not a, it's not an argument about how the world gets started. That's a separate argument. It's an argument about if, if, if this unmoved mover didn't exist, then nothing would be happening right now. Nothing would be going on. No change would be occurring in the world. No motion, no development, no growth, no nothing. Now, if you divide Western history into three periods, you can say from the beginning of the church until the Middle Ages, um, it was assumed that God existed. And uh, Plotinus has a proof uh, from the composition of things. Uh, Augustine has a proof that has to do with universals. Uh, Thomas has a proof that deals with existence and essence. Um, there has to be a being who has existence as part of his essence. That is the equivalent of the unmoved mover. Um, and, and Augustine thinks that's obvious, Thomas thinks that's obviously God. But, but in this whole period of time, for a very long time, um, it was assumed that God existed and that there were arguments that proved that. So, so it, wasn't really, it wasn't really all that terribly controversial. When Thomas sets out the proofs for God's existence in the Summa Theologica, he's just summing up the conventional wisdom. He, he really isn't arguing for as if everybody, it's not as if Thomas envisions himself in a situation where everybody else in society doesn't believe in God's existence, but he has to try to talk them into believing in it. No, he's, he's assuming that, that the world 
that, that scholarly, philosophically minded, scientific, intelligent people understand that, of course, God exists. There must be some kind. Of, the only question is what kind of God this is. Who, who, is, who is this God? What's his name? What's, his, what is, what's he like? And so on. But, but the fact that God exists is just a, an axiom of intellectual thought. Now, then you go through a long period of time between Thomas and uh, the all the way through to the Reformation and the Protestant scholasticism, all the way up to the 19th century, where theologians would typically begin their, their summary of theology with um, uh, talking about general and special revelation. And under general revelation, they would talk about the proofs for God's existence and sort of reviewing those and laying a foundation for saying, okay, now that we know there's a God, what is this God like? And well, we've special revelation tells us who this God is like and, and what his name is and so on. And then after the enlightenment and especially as summarized in Hume and the work of Immanuel Kant, for the last 200 years, we live in a society where uh, if the default assumption is that you can't prove God's existence. The default assumption is that all the metaphysical proofs for the existence of God that go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle are faulty and that uh, there is no way to prove God's existence. And so there's a, and so we, we have the rise of apologetics and apologetics is uh, sort of assuming a, a minority position over against the culture saying, we're going to try to convince you that in fact God does exist and that Christianity is in fact true and the Bible is the word of God because the default setting of society is that it it doesn't, they don't believe that. Now, my concern is that um, we have to be careful about conceding too much ground to modern skepticism. There are a number of reasons why I think that, but uh, I see the skepticism that has arisen in, as a result of the Enlightenment as being no different than the skepticism of the ancient world. It's, uh, it's basically, um, it, it's, it's not intellectually respectable. What, what I'm trying to say is it's irrational. That the skeptical arguments of human can't do not hold water. And people should not take them that seriously. Um, we, should, we should not lose our nerve. Uh, we should continue to say that God does exist. This is, a, this is rationally demonstrable. And the only question is who God is and what he has done. But the fact that there's a God is something that uh, you cannot deny unless you want to descend into irrationality. And as we look around, we see our society is descending into irrationality. First it denied God, now it's descending into irrationality. That was to be expected. So what we should, my, my concern is that we, that we, that it's not that I want to, to develop some kind of theology based only on natural theology, ignoring special revelation in the Bible. That's not my goal. But my goal is to say that, as human beings who have reason, we need to understand that God's existence is something that can be demonstrated to any rational person unless that person is irrationally resisting the truth. And that's our starting point. Um, we're, we're not asking, because a lot of people, when, when they become Christians today, a lot of people think that what they're being asked to believe is they're being asked to act as if God existed. They're, 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 they're being asked to, to sort of pretend that there's a God in the way they go about living their lives, 
to, 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 to accept certain ethical positions as if there was a God who made that command and, and gave it to us. But that's not really what we're trying to get people to do. We're trying to get people to actually believe in God. And believing should not be conceived of as going against our reason or taking a leap of faith into the darkness that, that uh, goes way beyond the evidence. But rather, belief is just seeing reality clearly. The, the, the faith that we, that we are proposing uh, in our evangelistic effort is, is, is we're calling people to simply um, see reality as it really is and to understand that God really does exist and that everything else flows from that. So that, that's why I think these arguments are important. It's not that the arguments per se are important. It's almost, um, I would say that it's critical to believe that we can prove the, the existence of God. It's interesting that in 1871, um, at Vatican Council I, the Roman Catholic Church declared as an infallible truth that God's existence can be proven by reason. And, um, Last year, a book was published, A Introduction to Christian Theology by Daniel Trier, called Introducing Evangelical Theology, I believe. And I haven't read the book from cover to cover, but I've scanned through it. I've looked at the table of contents. I've looked at the index. I've, I've looked at the various chapters. So far as I can see, there's no real treatment of the proofs for the existence of God. And the book really reflects evangelical theology, I think, very well. It's a, it's, a, it's a good book in many ways, and, it, and it, it, it tells us what evangelicals believe today. Um, but it's interesting that one of the things that's not there is proofs for God's existence. And I just think that the, that, that the mindset that says reason tells us this is different from, well, we know that science is against it and the philosophy is against it and the culture in general is against it, but somehow we cling stubbornly to this outdated notion that there's a God because we, well, we're just traditional or we've just taken a leap of faith in the, into the dark or, or that's our personal worldview um, or something like that. I, I, I'm, I'm really concerned about the, what we regard to be the status of the Christian belief in God. What do we mean when we say we believe in God and what does it mean to believe in God and, and, and what, 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 what does the church affirm about belief in God as well as affirming that we believe in God? So I'll, I'll leave it there and see if you wanna go have any questions. Well, uh, as we try to advance this conversation a little bit, we want to give uh, Dr. Bolt an opportunity to respond to uh, what you've said. So, uh, Dr. Bolt, during this time, how would you uh, like to respond? Yeah, I think that was very helpful. Um, that actually corrects a few misconceptions uh, for me as to where Dr. Carter might stand. And hopefully uh, I can correct any misconceptions as to where people might take me to be uh, in response. So, there are two ways, uh, at least two ways, that we can kind of approach this topic, right? So there's uh, talking about it in terms of the project of natural theology or the uh, classical theistic proofs. And then there's also, uh, you know, a particular way that we can approach it. So Dr. Carter started with a particular example of the unmoved mover uh, traditional proof uh, and then moved into kind of his project. Uh, and so I want to start with the project and then move backward into the particular example there. Um, and so what Dr. Carter said there about let, let's take the, the default position to be not the 
default position of modernism and the enlightenment and Hume and Kant. And I actually agree with that, right? Our default uh, should not be that we can't prove God's existence or that we're working from the ground of, let's start with this sort of uh, assumption of atheism or agnosticism or something and move toward God through these traditional proofs. Rather, I think we should, we should actually start with the tacit assumption of God's existence and not just because we've inferred it, but because we have uh, an innate knowledge of the existence of God. And, uh, and so I, I agree with him that we shouldn't concede all this ground to modern skepticism, but at the same time, that's one of my issues with some of the approaches to uh, traditional proofs for the existence of God. Now, I need to be very specific and, and nuanced as to what I mean by that, um, because there are different uses for natural theology. Um, and, and I wholeheartedly affirm uh, dogmatic uses of natural theology. Uh, and so that would even pertain to the classical proofs for the existence of God. Uh, that would pertain to various uh, philosophical constructs that get us to particular attributes of God. Uh, and so without me, hopefully without me having to defend this, I would submit something like the doctrine of divine simplicity as an example of this, right? So we're using philosophical reasoning to more fully understand something that, that I, I do believe is actually given to us in scripture, but uh, it's really filled out by a robust philosophical case uh, for divine simplicity. So let's move into the traditional proofs, um, something like the unmoved mover argument, this idea that since change occurs, we see uh, what's potential becoming actualized. And this is very uh, Aristotelian, right? Um, and so we're, we're seeing these series of causes and whatnot so that something uh, fully actual has to kick this off or start this chain. So a particular objection to this proof would be that even in saying that something fully actual must start this chain, we are looking at that thing, whatever it might be, as moving from a state of potentiality to actuality. And so the question becomes, why exempt whatever that unmoved mover is? Why exempt it from this needing to be moved? Uh, you know, another objection would be, why not just assume uh, an infinite chain of causes? Now, I think there are probably some problems with that, but that's some of the pushback against that particular proof, right? And so, um, even though I think that we can go through some of these traditional proofs, and I think this might be where Dr. Carter winds up too, I, I'm not sure yet, but we, we might go through these traditional proofs and say, for example, I'll give you uh, the Kalam cosmological argument. So whatever begins to exist uh, has a cause for its coming into being. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. For the sake of the listeners, I need to clarify that it is not the same argument as the one that Dr. Carter presented. It's not talking about the beginning of the universe or something. This is just another example. I, as a Christian, affirm those three premises of that argument. I affirm it as, as valid, and so I affirm it as a sound argument uh, for uh, the creatorship of, of God that's known through human reasoning, that's known through uh, natural theology, okay? Uh, and, and nevertheless, I need to fill that out then by relying upon dogmatic theology. And I think I caught uh, some sense of that from what Dr. Carter was saying, even with regard to Aquinas. Aquinas is not saying, hey, this is how we're gonna go convince the atheists down the street. 
Aquinas was starting with the assumption of the existence of God and then trying to fill out that concept more and simply saying, you know, it's faith seeking understanding. It's the, uh, the faith uh, working through reasoning to say, no, we can actually know God and know things about God through human reasoning. So I'm not objecting at all to the dogmatic use of natural theology in that sense. My objections would rest more so in the area of a pre-dogmatic use um, of natural theology to where our basis for belief is in these rationalistic proofs. Um, and it would also rest then in most apologetic uh, functions of natural theology where I'm telling the unbeliever, here is your rational basis uh, for belief. Because I don't think that that gets us to uh, the God of the Bible. I think that in, in some respects, uh, those proofs are incompatible with the God of the Bible. But again, the, the need becomes one of parsing out um, <laughs> what exactly, how exactly we're using uh, natural theology uh, in that way. Uh, I have more I could say about that, but I'm going to let you guys kind of carry the conversation. So. We'll give uh, Dr. Carter a chance to respond. Yes, I think this is a good conversation. We're, we're making progress here, so let's, get, let's, let's uh, stick with it. Um, as far as uh, the, the causal chain of God as pure act, starting it off, uh, Dr. Bold is correct in that uh, the Kalam uh, cosmological argument is different from Aristotelian argument that I'm talking about. So let me try to clarify what, what this argument is saying. Um, Faser explains that there are two kinds of, uh, of causal chains, hierarchical and linear. And there, to, to explain the difference quickly, um, if you take two examples, if you take the example of the grandfather and the son and the grandson, the grandfather begets the, a son who begets a son. The grandfather can die, and yet the grandson could grow up and beget a son himself. So the grandfather is, in a sense, the cause of the grandson through, the, through his own son, but he is not, he doesn't have to continue to exist in order for the potential uh, of the grandson to become a father to be realized. That is, uh, that is one kind of causal chain, um, and, and, we, and we see those kinds of chains. The question is whether that's the only kind. And Fazer would argue, no, it's not the only kind. There's a, there, are, there is a different kind, and it's more, the example of the other kind is like a boy with a stick, uh, putting it into the creek and turning over a rock, which causes the water to become muddy and uh, something under the rock to slither out. And, and as, he, as the boy, as the, as, the, as the mind is making the arm grasp the stick, which is going into the water, which is stirring up the water and stirring up the mud at the bottom of the stream, causing the cloudiness of the stream, um, all of the parts of that sequence have to be operating simultaneously in order for the action to continue to occur. Um, if the boy stop, if the boy throws the stick down and goes home for supper, the water soon clears. The continuing stirring up of the cloudiness in the water does not continue even after the boy leaves and no longer is participating in it. The question is whether all the causal chains in the universe can fit into the first kind of causal chain, or whether some are in fact the second kind. And, and the Aristotelian argument is that, that the second kind, uh, that's, that there are some 
causal chains of the second kind, which result in, which either have to terminate in a first mover, an unmoved mover, a, 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 a first cause that is pure act, or they would not be, there wouldn't be anything happening now. Okay, so, so the, so, so the question of, of what actualizes God is, 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 is misses the point, because the, the point is that the difference between God and all of the things in creation is that all of the things in creation are mixtures of actuality and potentiality, but that God is pure actuality. He is the unactualized actualizer, is the, the phrase that Fazer uses, which I think is very helpful. Um, and, so, and so the fact that he is that means that he causes things, but is not himself caused. He's not self-caused. He's not caused by anything else. Uh, he's not actualized by anything else because there's no potential in God for to be actualized. He simply is pure act. So, um, so, so in terms of the, so that's one issue is, is the proof even valid? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a discussion that uh, maybe before I, I go on to, to uh, anything else, maybe uh, Dr. Bolt would like to respond to that. Yeah, go ahead, Dr. Bolt. Yeah, I, mostly I was working off of your language there of, um, of God starting this chain of events and whatnot. So I took that to be this type of linear causality. But I, I mean, I take your point that there's more than one type of, of causation, of course. Um, and, uh, and again, I was presenting this as an, as a, an example of uh, particular objections to a particular proof versus what would be an objection, a project-based objection to natural theology, right? So we could go through each of these proofs, traditional proofs, which would take a long, long time, right? <laughs> or, uh, or, or present some of these as examples as I did with the objection, which you responded to. I, I see that. Uh, I would have other objections to that one in particular, but I think that maybe the project objection helps us a little bit more uh, to get to where we need um, to go. You, you did make some comments, and I think you're much more studied than I am in the area of, of history. Uh, and I think that because I've heard you elsewhere and because I am not very studied in the area of history. But um, I do have some comments, if the hosts don't mind, about some of the things you picked up on regarding uh, modernism and, and the way that that interacts with these, uh, these proofs. Um, would that be a discussion for us to have as we talk about David Hume? Um, let's see. When, because that, that's the probably, next question. We could probably wedge it in there. We could, we could wedge it in there. Are, are you ready to move on to David Hume, Dr. Carter? Well, I think Dr. Carter had one other thing to say. Do you have something well, else if, to say? Um, if, uh, um, just one, one other thing about the, the church fathers. Um, we need to understand that the church fathers themselves believed that the uh, philosophical proofs of the existence of God were valid. Now, that put them in this situation. And this is hard for moderns to kind of think themselves into that situation. But that from the point of view of someone like Augustine, he's saying, well, the, Pl the Platonists believe that, that there is a God, an immutable, eternal, uh, self-existent being beyond the world of changing flux that exists. When we proclaim the God of the Bible, when we preach uh, that God has 
revealed himself in Israel and climactically in the person of Jesus Christ. What do people think we mean by God? When, when we say God created the world, are, are they envisioning a, an entity other than the unmoved mover of, of philosophy? Or are they envisioning the unmoved mover as behind this God or this God behind the unmoved mover? Well, that doesn't work. He can't be behind the unmoved mover. So how do they, how do they fit together? And from Augustine's point of view, the choice is either um, to identify the um, God of the Bible with the unmoved mover, in which case uh, you, you have one set of problems, obviously, or you identify, you don't identify the God of the Bible, but if in a polytheistic culture, the danger of not identifying the God of the Bible with the, with the God of the philosophers is that it sounds like you, you are making out the God of the Bible to be the tribal God of the Jews, um, and he's one of many gods. So there's the Greek gods, the Roman gods, and many other gods, and then there's this God, Yahweh, and he kind of fits into the cosmos as one among many. So that was something that fathers found completely unacceptable. And so they preferred to say, well, when the Bible says that God created, Yahweh created the heavens and the earth, this means he is the creator. What the philosophers were blindly groping toward, trying to get to the idea of the first cause of everything, well, they were, they were groping their way toward that God. Now, of course, this does create the problem, and I think this is where Chris wants to go next, is the, um, is the question of, so how does a purely actual, purely simple, immutable God interact with the creation? With, with uh, how does he speak and act in history and judge and save, become incarnate and all the rest? Uh, how does that happen? I would submit that that's the, that's the problem that the church fathers chose as the, as the easier problem to deal with than the other problem of making God to be a being among beings in, in the world. Okay, we'll go ahead and move on a little bit, but it, it is related. So, Dr. Bolt, can you explain to us the importance of David Hume and then go ahead and talk about modernism and, and some of the usefulness that, that it might have in this discussion? Yeah, and I think that what Dr. Carter may have been referring to there is something like uh, prolepsis that's coming out of the Epicureans. I mean, you see even in Calvin, he's using uh, some Stoic philosophy and these, uh, I guess what, uh, oh, what is, why am I forgetting his name? J.V. Fesco would refer to as common notions and this sort of thing, um, all of which I, I agree with actually uh, on that score. Uh, so those are some interesting points. And so the idea, there seems to be kind of this narrative out and about right now that, um, you know, modernism comes along, and, and we are talking about folks like David Hume and Immanuel Kant, and it comes along and and makes a mess of the earlier, more Catholic, and that's lowercase c, approach to uh, natural theology, or even perhaps pre-dogmatic uses of natural theology, where uh, we rest our Christian faith upon uh, some uh, pre-dogmatic discoveries available to us through natural theology. But you can also see that, it, I mean, it, it looks to me as though, even though we're granting things like uh, the Epicurean and Stoic uh, and Platonic, right, approaches to 
Uh, there is this God or there are these things we know. Um, you can call them self-evident. I can call them common notions, whatever. Um, there is still this idea that we see natural theology becoming more well-developed as time moves on. Uh, you see, of course, Aristotle spelling these things out and then Thomas Aquinas really working uh, off of that quite a great deal, I believe. And so it, it's not until a bit later that you see some of these arguments becoming uh, better formulated uh, from nature and from reasoning. And it makes sense to me that it's not necessarily modernism that comes along and, and tries to uh, tear that all apart. It's more so that there's pushback coming along from, for example, some reformed theologians who aren't necessarily delighted by every nook and cranny of that project as it's becoming uh, better developed, right? And of course, one of the issues that's going on with that approach is that we don't want to just kind of state the facts of historical theology and the development of philosophy and, and say, okay, well, here's where that came from. And so we're gonna reject that or whatever. It, it really comes back to, is this theologically or philosophically cogent or not, right? Um, so I, I, I would approach this and say, actually some of the guys who are doing um, natural theology and using it pre-dogmatically and using it apologetically are, are not coming, um, coming out of the old ancient Catholic uh, approach to these questions. They're actually incorporating a great deal of insight from modernism, from people like uh, say Rene Descartes um, and so this pre-dogmatic model of natural theology is, is coming to prominence during the same time that classical foundationalism uh, seems to be coming to pro prominence. And so it, it doesn't seem to be the case to me, and Dr. Carter can correct me because, again, this is out of my wheelhouse, but it, it seems to me that, that natural theology is not being opposed to uh, the modernist project as much as it's actually incorporating it later on down the road. Um, and so there are prominent critics, even within the reform camp, who seem to be pushing back against some of these uh, more disturbing, to them anyway, uh, uses of natural uh, theology. And so that's one side of that kind of equation. And I, I think that there are some uh, insights and some pushback against natural theology that we can take from someone like um, a David Hume. So when, when I talk about David Hume and some of his insights being valuable, I wanna be very clear <laughs> that I am not uh, a skeptical fideist. I'm, I'm not, um, some people argue that he may have been, uh, or deist anyway. I'm not arguing um, that we incorporate his insights in some positive fashion uh, as you know, the default position is we need to be agnostic or atheistic as we approach proofs of the existence of God. That's not what I'm saying at all. Actually, what I'm saying is that someone like David Hume or Immanuel Kant, um, less so Kant, but more so Hume, when he approaches things as a skeptic, his problem is that he's not skeptical enough. Uh, Hume is, is not only bringing up these particular objections to particular traditional arguments for the existence of God, Hume is also leveling project objections against the very project of natural 
theology. And some of the objections that he brings against the project of natural theology are in terms of things like uh, causality and causation, which I think might take us into this uh, discussion of metaphysical realism and analytical philosophy um, later on. But um, Kant wants, or not Kant, Hume wants to say that um, that our our idea that this causality is or causation rather is limited to experience okay and so when we limit uh, causation to experience or we when we see that causation is limited to our experience it seems to follow from that that it, it's it's quite a jump to try to argue upon the basis of causation to the existence of of someone or something outside of uh, I'll call it causal chain for the sake of, of being short, but um, it, 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 it's an Ill illegitimate jump to argue from causation, which only exists in our experience, to something we've not experienced, something like uh, God. Now, Hume famously argues as well against uh, our ability to know necessary connections between, say, event A and event B, and that certainly comes into to apply in this case. Um, as well, I think. Um, but much of the, the main objection, I would think, from Hume against natural theology would come uh, in light of that understanding of causation being um, just known through our experience. Hume also objected on the basis of proportionality. And so, uh, to steal an example that I saw somewhere, uh, if you see a, um, a set of scales and there's a uh, say a baseball on one side of the scales, right? Um, and and the baseball is up in the air. It's not down on that side of the scale, but you can't see the other side, whatever's on the other side of the scale. Well, it doesn't have to be a 747 jumbo jet on the other side of the scale to lift the baseball, okay? It could just be, um, you know, a set of weights or something. And so it doesn't make sense in Hume's mind to say, okay, well, here is this uh, set of finite causes. Here's this um, cosmos that we witness. It doesn't make sense in his mind to say, well, we must need an infinite cause, or we, we need some sort of infinite explanation uh, for everything that we see around us. And so this is a, a principle of proportionality that we find in Hume, where he's saying, um, you know, why go for this grander explanation of things when we can simply go for a much lesser um, explanation, right? And there are some other, I mean, it, we would have to go through the dialogues of um, natural religion from Hume to talk about all the different particulars, which I'm not necessarily prepared to do right now. Uh, and it would take a long time as well. <laughs> but uh, those are some of the main objections from Hume. You know, kind of derivative of what Hume is saying in his major works, you can also bring uh, even more potent objections to bear, I think, upon the project of natural theology in terms of something like uh, induction. So yes, we see uh, some things apparently move from potentiality to actuality, but why suppose that this is the case uh, in every instance? or? Uh, even the particular examples we provide, why suppose that they act that same way uh, elsewhere? Uh, you know, that's an inductively derived um, belief there. 
uh, that things move from potentiality to actuality in that in that way. Uh, now I'm just bringing that to bear upon one traditional proof. Again, we could we could talk about many others with this sort of objection. Um, and then even peeling off of Hume, uh, you could ask questions about deductive logic itself. Kind of by way of analogy, you could say this. Let's say that you're talking to um, a skeptic. You're talking to an atheist or an agnostic or someone like that. And you make this case that Christianity is true, whatever that means. Say Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, that's true. And then that person looks at you and says, well, actually, I do agree with you. I just wanted to argue for the sake of it. And I'm still a skeptic, but I believe that Christianity is true. And you say, well, what on earth does this mean? Well, let's say that the person has some sort of strange postmodern view of truth where this is true for you, but not for them, or this is true for you. And right as of right now, it's true for them. Or maybe they have a pragmatic view of truth where it just simply works to, to shut down the conversation because they want to go on about their day. And so they want to say, sure, I'll grant that it's, you know, it works for me to grant that this, I don't, something strange like that, right? They have a different view of truth, which many people uh, do. Well, you haven't thereby proved Christianity the way that you intended to prove it to that person. Because though they may be granting that Christianity is true, they're operating with a completely different understanding of truth than what you have presented to them in accord with the Christian worldview. The same thing I would hold is true with regard to inductive and deductive logics. And so when you're approaching someone with these various um, uh, traditional proofs for the existence of God used in an apologetic way, or when you are basing uh, your Christian faith itself on these natural theological proofs in a pre-dogmatic sense, the problem is that you've already started with a view and an understanding of deductive uh, logic and inductive reasoning and induction, you've already started with these views that themselves may or may not be consistent with uh, a Christian understanding of those same things, okay? Uh, in the same way that with the skeptic who held a different view of truth, uh, was approaching the idea of Christianity as true in a very different way, right? So mm -hmm. also when it comes to deductive logic or induction, and so someone would say, well, what is the relevant difference between the way that a believer and an unbeliever views logic or induction? And I would say um, there's a vast difference there <laughs> between the way that, that people view them. Yes, there may be some sort of formal overlap without a material agreement because uh, for the Christian, uh, logic is not, I don't imagine, uh, that, that people would say that it is. Logic is not the ultimate standard. Uh, of, of truth or what we should believe in these sorts of things. It is ministerial in its nature. It's not magisterial. Uh, God is magisterial. He is the ultimate authority. And the same thing with uh, inductive reasoning and inductive logic. Uh, I believe uh, in, in causality and, and I believe in the laws of nature and this sort of thing, uh, not because of a, a human uh, regularity thesis and and not because of a scientific essentialism by way of Aristotle. I believe that there is a principle of regularity in nature whereby I can have inductive reasoning because God exists. 
and because uh, he is the God scripture describes him as being. He is a God of order and regularity who imposes that upon his creation uh, by way of, of providence and, and oversight. And so uh, even though I think, again, dogmatically, we could use these natural theological proofs, again, as a Christian, I can come to these proofs and say, you know what, that is a good point. That does seem to show this attribute of God, or this does seem to, to corroborate my belief in the existence of God by way of reasoning. I have no issue with that. I do have an issue with approaching the unbeliever with these uh, proofs in the sense of an apologetic uh, basis or pre-dogmatic uh, basis for belief. Okay, with that, I want to give, you said a lot there, I want to give Dr. Carter a chance to respond. So, Dr. Carter, do you have a response? Yes, uh, I, I don't know if we're making uh, uh, great progress here uh, uh, in terms of clarifying how we might not, how we might or might not agree on this. Um, what you said at the end there, Chris, I, I agree with that, that um, the only reason why the laws of nature can be investigated uh, the only reason why natural science is, is uh, possible is because God, uh, because of divine providence and, and because God created the world through his logos and imprinted rationality on the world, that the world operates according to uh, patterns and, and so on. And it's the existence of God that actually makes science possible. It's belief in the existence of God that actually makes science possible for a culture. That there are three things that are intertwined, natural science, scientific law, natural law, um, the natural moral law, and the proofs of the existence of God. All of these things are, are interconnected, and Hume undermines them all. So I don't understand why you're not more upset about Hume, uh, because, uh, I, and, and it sounded like earlier you were even perhaps suggesting that some of Hume's arguments were valid. I don't think his arguments against causality were, are valid at all. Uh, I don't think that Hume um, uh, proved or any such thing that that uh, th that things might not have a cause. I mean, Hume says in the in the dialogues, he says, "Well, I can imagine a thing just popping into existence out of nowhere, and so therefore I can imagine the thing having no cause." And I would say to that, "No, you're not imagining it having no cause." If I mean, the reality is that if if a if an if a round glowing object appeared on your desk in front of your computer right now, uh, a golden a golden globe with emanating some light, you, you would not say, um, well, isn't that amazing? Things just pop into being on my desk all the time. No, you would say, how did that get there? And um, you, might, you might come up with theories about how it happened. Maybe, maybe somebody snuck up from behind and temporarily put you, made you unconscious and put it there. And then when you woke up, it appeared to you that it had just appeared. Or maybe it's uh, maybe Star Trek transponders uh, have been uh, transporters have been invented and somebody transported it there. Um, but you would assume that everything has a cause. I mean, when when detectives are called to the scene of a crime and they find a dead body, they don't just say, "Oh well, sometimes people just get stabbed. There's no cause of that." They they want to look for the criminal. And science and normal life assumes that things have causes, and so. For, for, for Hume to say that maybe things don't have causes 
and to reduce everything to experience in the way that he did. Um, I mean, Kant saw the problem. Kant saw that, that if Hume is right, then uh, Hume is a nominalist. He doesn't believe in realism. He doesn't believe that, that you have, uh, uh, that there are such things as universals. And he doesn't believe that there's, he has no use for formal and final causation. He thinks every can be, everything can be reduced to efficient and material causation. And, and Hume's account of causation is just extremely problematic. Uh, it doesn't just undermine proofs for God's existence. It undermines science. It, it undermines reason itself. And so Kant, his whole project was to try and, and create the critical philosophy, which was a way of uh, reconstituting some sort of basis for, for knowledge, because Hume had undermined it all. And, and Hume and Kant wanted to say, well, without knowing the thing in itself, is there some way that we can give an account of, of sense perception of the world? And so he, he came up with the idea of the mind and the categories of the understanding to organize the sense perception and to create a, a, a views of, of things in the world. But, but Kant was driven to this project because, because he realized that if Hume is right, and we don't do something about this, skepticism and relativism are just around the corner. They are going to develop out of this. And we see that happening. And it's, 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 it's very, it's only, you know, Hume, uh, Hume and Kant are at the end of the 18th century. And by the end of the 19th century, you have Nietzsche and nihilism. So um, I, I want to say that Hume is wrong, just as a matter of fact. Um, he, he's wrong. And therefore, there is no need to under, there's no need for Kant's critical reconstruction of epistemology and metaphysics. There's no need for, for modern skepticism and nihilism. And I think it's really important to say this. Uh, and it, it's, it affects theology, but it affects a lot of other, other things also. Okay, Dr. So I think Bo that's maybe where we, where we might be differing, Chris, is uh, in our evaluation of how, how effective Hume's arguments against uh, traditional metaphysics, like the proofs for the God's existence, the idea of causality, the idea of realism, how effective those arguments were. Dr. Bolt, you can go ahead and respond or add to anything or clarify yes. anything. Thank you for listening to part one of this conversation with Dr. Craig Carter and Dr. Chris Bolt. We hope that you will tune in next week to hear the second part of this conversation. Listeners of the podcast, if you desire additional content, check out our extension ministry of the Covenant podcast, Covenant Confessions at covenantconfessions.com. Covenant Confessions is a blog ministry and the contributors desire to equip God's people with content that informs and encourages from a 1689 Baptist perspective. Check it out.